New Year's Day, 1968. It was a Monday. So I reported to work at 11 p.m. in the newsroom of the Philadelphia Daily News. I never got used to working nights, which I did for a couple more years, but I loved my job. I loved my job because it put me, just 21 years old, at the center of history's first draft. Through a combination of luck, aptitude, interest, and a good work ethic, I was a newspaper copy editor. Most, most, most young people interested in journalism like to be out on the street chasing down sources and facts and getting it the, out in the excitement, like dropping money. Um, and I love the inside, where we put it all together. Working against long odds, all night long, I smoothed out wording, challenged details, rearranged articles, and worked in the interest of the people who would buy this paper and have to read this stuff that we worked on. Three colleagues and I processed every word going into the news pages and wrote the headlines. Shortly after we finished, at 7 a.m., the presses would begin rolling on the first edition, and some 250,000 copies would eventually be printed and distributed. It was perhaps the most meaningful work I could hope for at that age and with my limited academic credentials. And by the way, in true Philadelphia style, I often celebrated the end of the shift at 7 a.m. by buying a fried egg and scrapple sandwich on a hard roll. Now, New Year's Day 2018 was also a Monday, but retired now, I had no job to report to. When I'm not reading about the world and binge-watching murder mysteries, I'm still trying to do meaningful work, like writing and delivering sermons and organizing for better angels. That New Year's Day 50 years ago and this last one have a lot in common other than both being Mondays. Each one introduced a year in highly divisive times. 1968 turned out intensely sad, which is why I chose the, the song I did, written and recorded in that year, to set the tone for the sermon. Let's hope that 2018 turns out happier. I do have moments of despair about the current binary extremism, but as I've researched, thought, and jogged my memory about 1968, I've realized that maybe what we're going through today isn't so different. And maybe there is ground for hope. So come with me as I relive some of 1968. Now, it's, it's always tempting and misleading to trace major historic trends to one event, but certainly a, a catalyst to today's conflicts was the presidential election of November 2016. Similarly, a catalyst for the societal tensions of, 19, of the 1960s was President John Kennedy's decision to send 400 Green Berets to Vietnam in a secret operation in May 1961, and President Lyndon Johnson's repeated subsequent decisions to escalate U.S. involvement there. But the roots of the war in Vietnam go back to French colonialism in the 19th century, 
And the roots of today's conflicts here in the United States and those of half a century back go go maybe to the to the compromises at the nation's founding, half slave and half free states. So in 1968, we were just five days into the year. On January 5th, Dr. Benjamin Spock, Yale chaplain, Williams, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock, Yale chaplain, William Sloan Coffin, and three others were indicted on charges of conspiracy to encourage violation of the draft laws. Conspiracy to encourage violation of the draft laws. A jury later found Spock, Coffin, and two others uh, guilty, but the convictions were eventually overturned. Now, I'm not fond of the way the word privilege is thrown around today, but there's no question that 50 years ago, the universal draft and the Vietnam War were wrecking balls for the lives and the families of the less privileged white as well as brown and black. Then, still in January, on January 23rd, with no direct connection to Vietnam, North Korean patrol boats captured the USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy intelligence gathering vessel, and its 83-man crew. It was a major embarrassment for the United States and almost a year of deprivation and torture for the crew. They were not released until December 22nd. The ship itself was never returned, and and it remains a tourist attraction in Pyongyang. The the woman shown here is a modern-day North Korean soldier and tour guide, and that's the, the, the boat behind her. And the bad news of January 1968 was not yet over. On the 31st, the North Vietnamese launched what would become known as the Tet Offensive, taking its name from the holiday marking the Vietnamese New Year. Almost 70,000 North North Vietnamese troops applied unprecedented pressure to the cities in the South. They even overran and held the U.S. Embassy in Saigon for more than six hours. The Tet Offensive contributed to making 1968 the costliest year of the war as measured by U.S. service members killed, 16,899, or almost 30% of the war's total fatalities. It was much costlier for the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops, not to mention civilians, But even so, it was a turning point in how the war was perceived outside Vietnam, as well as by the troops fighting. Every night, we watched video footage from reporters embedded with U.S. combat units under siege. This was every night on the the network, network news. Vietnam is known as the first television war but its strong still images still haunt many of us who lived through that period. I'm sure you're all familiar with the famous photo of the little girl naked running from a napalmed village, but this is the image that turned my stomach even more. On February 1st, during the height of the Tet Offensive, Brigadier General Nguyen Nguyen Nhoc Loan casually executed a handcuffed Vietnam 
Viet Cong prisoner. Lone went on to lose a leg in the war and to open a pizza restaurant in Burke, Virginia. On February 7th came one of the most famous quotations from the war. Speaking about the embattled city of Bentry, an unnamed U.S. major said, it became necessary to destroy the town to save it. Meanwhile, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was becoming more disillusioned and depressed. He was still intensely disliked by many white Americans. One rewrite man at my newspaper, who would later become a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, showed me a photo he kept in his wallet. In it, Dr. King was shaking hands with Gus Hall, president of the American Communist Party, in what appeared to be a busy auditorium. What more proof did I need, he asked me, that King was a commie. Dr. King was also concerned about a growing trend toward militancy in the Black Power Movement and the the Black Panther Party. Plus, he had gradually come to see the escalating war in Vietnam as inseparable from the cause of justice at home. He began to talk more about his death. On February 4th, two months before his assassination, he preached a sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, containing, that was his church, containing what amounts to his own eulogy. After his death, he said, I'd like somebody to mention that that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to, say that I was a drum major for peace, for righteousness. Amid all this came the presidential primaries. Richard Nixon was dominating the Republican vote, and the sitting president, LBJ, was widely expected to go all the way. There was one peace candidate early in the year, a mild-mannered and decidedly uncharismatic senator named Eugene McCarthy. Supported by thousands of hardworking students who had become clean for Gene, McCarthy, on March 12th, achieved the unthinkable in the New Hampshire primary. He came within 230 votes of defeating Johnson, the sitting president. Just uh, took only four more days then before a charismatic, a much more charismatic, but also more moderate Democratic senator, Robert Kennedy, to enter the race. Fifteen days after that, 15 days after Kennedy entered the race on March 31st, we witnessed another unthinkable development in our, on our black and white TV screens. At the conclusion of, the, of an address to the nation about the war, President Johnson said these words. I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. 
With America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace in the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The next morning, a Monday, in West High School in Phoenix, Roger Fritz, later to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, was taking a history test, 40 multiple-choice questions. At around question number 30, this is what his teacher had written. I am typing this test Sunday evening with President Johnson giving a speech on TV. He has just announced that he will not run for re-election. Out of unparalleled joy and happiness, I give you the next five questions free. <laughs> Before I leave the month of March, I need to note one more unthinkable, one that didn't become public for more than two and a half years. On March 16th, the same day that RFK joined the presidential race, American soldiers killed roughly 350 to 500 unarmed civilians in what became known as the My Lai Massacre. It's beyond the scope of this sermon to dive deeper into that incident, except to say that a helicopter pilot and his crew spotted the devastation and ended it. Bless the persons of principle in troubled times. On April 4th, I arrived for work early and in a daze because I had heard the news and knew it would be a rough night. Dr. King had been killed while standing on the balcony of his motel room in Memphis. I hoped I didn't get the main story to edit that night because I didn't know how I could process those dreadful words. Earlier in the evening, Robert Kennedy had willingly taken on a much tougher job. You know, he was someone who'd never, who'd kind of held King at a distance. But that night, Kennedy did what uh, he may m most be remembered for. We didn't have cell phones and internet services to keep, up, uh, to keep us aware of breaking news wherever we were. So RFK knew what most of his audience didn't when he walked into the campaign rally for him at 17th and Broadway in the heart of the Indianapolis ghetto. He asked his supporters to put down their signs. And then he said these words. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice 
between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks, and white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. Rioting broke out after Dr. King's assassination in Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Kansas City, Newark, Washington, and many other cities. But Indianapolis was not one of them. Just two months later, June 4th, was the California primary, which Robert Kennedy won. Around 3.30 the next morning, as we processed that news from the wire services, the phone on the copy desk rang. A staff member who was home told us to turn on the TV. 
we learned that way that Kennedy had been shot and went back to the teletype room to get the details. He died 24 hours later. Two months elapsed between the height of the Tet Offensive and the murder of Dr. King, and two more between King's death and the assassination of Senator Kennedy. It was already a dreadful year, and we were just halfway through it. No wonder we thought it was going to rain today. It was the Reverend, the revered Unitarian Ralph Waldo Emerson who coined the phrase, the shot heard round the world, for a hymn that was sung at the dedication of the Concord Man Monument in 1836. In some ways, the Tet Offensive was another shot heard round the world. Anti-war protests, along with pro-socialist sentiment, went global, largely led by college students. Wikipedia gives protests of 1968 its own 3,000-word article. In France, student leaders linked up with trade unionists to protest capitalism, consumerism, American imperialism, and traditional institutions. Strikes involving 11 million workers, more than 22% of France's population, lasted two weeks. President Charles de Gaulle secretly slipped away from France for a few hours, but he returned and called for parliamentary elections, which he then won. I won't attempt to detail more of what was going on around the world, but there, except to mention the, the, Prox, the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia was an attempt to loosen Russians' control and was heavily suppressed. In the U.S., the civil rights and black power movements gained momentum and what we then called backlash. In March, students in North Carolina organized a sit-in at a local lunch counter, which spread to 15 cities. In East Los Angeles, students from five high schools walked out of their classes to protest unequal conditions. They inspired walkouts in 15 other schools. In the sports world, in the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, African-Americans Tommy Smith and John Carlos took the gold and bronze medals in the 200-meter race, Smith in world record time. In a gesture that stunned the stadium in the world during the Star-Spangled Banner, they raised their fists in a black power salute. This photo was front-page news in just about every U.S. newspaper. Little noticed was a civil, silver medalist, Australian Peter Norman, who wore a human rights badge, also against Olympics rules, in solidarity with Smith and Carlos, and to pr protest his own nation's racist past and its continuing repercussions. Richard Nixon, of course, won the Republican nomination that year and went on to the presidency. I'm sure you've all heard many times the story of the Democratic Convention in Chicago that year, won by Hubert Humphrey, but only after a police and yuppie riot outside and tumult inside the hall. CBS correspondent Dan Rather was roughed up by convention security guards as he tried to conduct an interview. And this man, Richard Daly, was, an old, was the old school mayor of Chicago. As I watched the proceedings on TV, 
with Senator Abraham Ribicoff on the dais criticizing what he called Gestapo tactics by the police outside, the camera caught a close-up in the audience of Major da- Mayor Daly, whose lips clearly were shouting a two-word insult beginning with F and ending with U. And it didn't, you didn't have to be a, a, a skilled lip reader to see it. Finally, a symbolic end to the year. On December 12th, Robert Kennedy's widow, Ethel, gave birth to their 11th child, Rory. Today, at age 49, she makes documentary films that center around social issues. So what's the spiritual lesson from all of this? What comes to my mind is a simple line from Psalms. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. We have been through difficult times before. Sometimes we despair over the present and forget how far we've come from the past. We may each define the thou in the biblical quote in different ways. God, nature, the Buddha within, the inner light, progress, the long arc of the universe. But it's what we lean on in order to fear no evil. And our faith helps us toward building a better world. Please rise and join in singing number 121, We'll Build a Land. <laughs>